0: Bibles to Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, we're going to couch our discussion this morning there in verses 10 through 12, as you've made your way there, let's pause and pray. Our Father God, your people have come together to call upon your name as you've instructed us in hope and belief that you will answer us. And surely, Lord, you have ordained an hour like this and a time like this from the inauguration of your church that we would know and hear your word, that we would be reminded as we sing to you how worthy you are of worship eternally, both now and forever. And so, Lord, we open these pages and we ask that you would speak We ask that you would equip us. We ask that you would correct us. We ask that you would found our faith on things that are sure the foundation of the apostles' teaching on the confession that you are Lord. And so please do that now. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Well, as we uh, close our little mini-series here before Advent, we're going to Talk about spiritual warfare. We're going to talk about what it is, talk about how it is, and we're going to get some good news, I hope, in the midst of it. Um, There is a lot of misunderstanding in regards to this topic. There's a lot of charismatic, I would say, belief in certain denominations about how this works. But basically, the main idea of spiritual warfare is that we are, in fact, in a battle that is not against flesh and blood. It personifies itself in that way. We find ourselves in one of two camps, children of God or children of His wrath, which, as Brother Jeff reminded us last week, would mean that we, if we are not children of God, that we exist uh, under every institution and every organization that is under the domain of darkness um, and has the power of Satan's the evil influence of Satan over it, including government and education and all those sorts of things, because the church is the only institution that Jesus guaranteed to build despite what could possibly come against it. And he's proven to do that over the past few millennial millenniums. So, we are recognizing as believers that there is a spiritual reality at play that is as real as the tangible reality that we face every day. And that, in fact, that spiritual reality is what informs and orchestrates and and moves the physical realities that we deal with every day. And to ignore that, especially as believers is to put your head in the sand and not be prepared for the battle that is happening, despite whether you choose to engage it or not. And that's mainly where this fighter versus idea comes from, that we're going to engage in as a church, is that you are uh, equipped with one weapon as a believer. It's the word of God. It's the sword. It's... What we read about there in Ephesians 6, and that's what we see in Revelation when Jesus is coming again to destroy everything that is against him. What comes out of his mouth is a sword, and that is signifying his word as the most powerful force in all of the universe. And his word is the most powerful force in all of the universe because he is the most powerful force in all the universe. And because he creates and directs from his commands. His words have creative power. His words have power to move the forces that be. His words have the ability to make you something that you're not. His words have the ability to create something that doesn't exist. Therefore, his word is the most powerful being. In fact, by his word, even Satan himself found existence. He's a creature of God who speaks with absolute sovereignty. And even that reality should inform how we uh, investigate and how we think about spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare is not as mystical as you and I would seem to make it. As you can see, the subtitle there is the word weapon. The main thing that we are equipped with, even Adam from the beginning, in the garden, the main thing that we're equipped with to do battle against those things that would seek to come against God and therefore His people is the Word. In essence, the truth. Because Satan's M.O., if he is the great granddaddy of all that is evil, his M.O. is to distort the truth. And when you read through the New Testament, you're going to realize that the main thing that they're up against, even though they are experiencing physical, physical persecution, the main thing that they're up against, the main thing that they're dealing with, the main thing that they're instructing and correcting the church on is false teaching, which is from who? Satan, who seeks and lives to distort the truth and to devour people with those lies. So it's not a Halloween type of haunted house ghost type of thing that we're dealing with. Satan knows how to destroy. And he knows that the most powerful thing he can do is distort the truth. Because if we hear the truth and accept the truth, then God gets glory. Then we become his children. Then we move out of the domain of darkness into the domain of light by that truth. And Satan is opposed to all of that, just like Jeff brought up, and I always bring up 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. That's what he is living to do, to blind the mind of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His biggest threat is Jesus. And you can even read in James that the demons know the name of Christ, they know who he is, they know him, and they what? Shudder. They're terrified. And in the Gospels, when Jesus enters even into the, the the geographical region of people that are possessed, they freak out, don't they? You know, it's kind of like those, I can't believe I'm going to say this, it's kind of like those Chuck Norris jokes that used to go around. Like, who's the boogeyman afraid of? Chuck Norris, you know? What's he checking under his bed for? Well, you you should take great comfort if you're a child of God in the fact that Jesus is what is terrifying uh, the the, the spiritual realms of darkness. The the exposing of of darkness and its deeds by the light is terrifying to them, not to mention they understand what's coming. Some of them, we're told, are even in chains as we speak, awaiting the judgment. And, and you'll read in the Gospels when, uh, when that one demon-possessed man who's possessed by that legion um, in the area of the Gadarenes approaches Jesus and he says, have you come to torment us before our time? They know what is coming. It's Jesus. It's terrifying. Now we're told in John 1-1 that Jesus is what? Jesus is the Word. The incarnation of the word, the very thing that we're getting ready to celebrate for Advent is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he did that, and when he began to speak and to preach and to get that word out there. And from that moment on, when when he gave his apostles and disciples authority by his word to speak the truth, it began to to stir up all of that uh, spiritual darkness. And because why? They began to lash out because they were terrified. You know how Jesus was able to come into this world, which is known as the domain of darkness under the prince of the power of the air? You know how he was able to do that? Uh, He says he he bound the strong man. Who's the strong man at work here? Satan. He's the one roaming around the earth. He's the one seeking people to devour. He's the one who is influencing and and directing all of those dark spiritual forces to where they need to go. But when Jesus came, he interrupts that in a major, major way. Because he is a living embodiment of the truth and word of God, which has complete and utter authority over all evil. So much so that as I often say, Satan is like a dog on a leash and he can only go as far as the Lord allows him to go and he can only strike as the Lord allows him to strike, which presents us with kind of a mystery in our faith and why he would allow Satan to continue to roam. And And one reason that is, is because he's an instrument of judgment. In other words, it's serving the purposes of God. When he does things. So, our spiritual warfare, or this battle that we're in, like it or not, um, is won by Jesus. The Bible makes that very clear. He came, uh, 2 Corinthians tells us, to destroy the strongholds of the evil one. He bound the strong man, he's raiding his house, so to speak. He's bringing out his goods, plundering his goods, taking them as his. And so we're going to look to him in all of our spiritual warfare. And we're going to look at a story at the end of this in Acts 19 uh, that's going to make very clear that we're not going to just um, assume that the name of Christ, as long as we say it, is going to do something magical. No. In spiritual warfare, you kind of kill two birds with one stone. You seek holiness by seeking the Lord in his righteousness, and that drives you into submission to God and resistance of evil. James 4 7. So if you seek the Lord, you're doing spiritual warfare. Because if you're engaged with Him, if you're abiding with Him, if His Word abides with you, that is completely complete in, in direct opposition to evil. So you don't have to utter some crazy phrases and and light some candles and and memorize some things. No, you seek the Lord and you'll do it. So let me read to you first Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, and then we'll get on with it. Uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when we talk about what we're wrestling against and how we wrestle, we come to this idea of spiritual warfare and we're asking, what is it? Well, a dictionary of Bible themes talks about it this way. The struggle against the forces of evil, which is a constant feature of the life of faith. Scripture locates the origins of spiritual warfare in the rebellion of Satan and his angels against God and affirms the hope of God's final victory over such forces through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Which is awesome, because we would earthly assume... That when Jesus dies on a cross, he loses. But keep in mind what we just read here in verse 12 of Ephesians 6 our battle's not against flesh and blood. Jesus is winning by giving up his flesh and blood. He's disarming the power over Satan and sin and death by making propitiation or paying for the penalty of such things that we have incurred by giving flesh and blood. Because God is the supreme authority and He will make good on punishing these forces and these things. And if Satan takes that punishment, or I mean if Jesus takes that punishment for us, then we're no longer under that condemnation of God, right? Romans 8.1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God gave him to pay for that. So Jesus is disarming those things. He's he's setting us free spiritually. He's giving us life. He's he's perfecting us and making us acceptable before God in that. So if you want to know why the cross is victory, there's a little bit of why. But back to spiritual warfare, how does, typically, how does it typically occur? Or what are we typically thinking about when we think about or the struggle against the forces of evil? Um, like I said before, lies, distorting the truth. The Bible knows Satan as the father of lies, right? And what's our culture doing today? Live your own truth, truth is relevant. It's a, it's a distraction away. It's, a, it's an influence of the evil one to get people away from the truth into their own flesh when, when it's tempted and lured away by its own desires gives birth to sin. And then sin gives way to death. So he's trying to get people over there by distorting the truth. or saying that there is no truth. But there is no reference point for truth. There is no absolute truth. No, there's... Singular truths, many truths, right? Also by belittling faith, by trying to get you to think that God is not present at times, when he seems silent, trying to get you to think that, well, maybe, uh, maybe your faith in this God is unfounded if you're dealing with this or if you're dealing with that or if that person's against you or whatever it may be. He tries to belittle Your belief in God. And a lot of how this is done is false teaching. So the thing that I'm most concerned about um, coming after you as a pastor is false teaching. Um, That's why I'm very hardcore about the studies that you do, the books that you read, the people you watch on TV or hopefully that you don't watch on TV. Because that is how Satan seeks to kill and destroy. Do you understand? He's not just seeking to, to, to fight you, to get into a street fight with you. He's seeking to destroy you. It is gravely serious, eternally serious. And a lot of times we act like it's not. A lot of times we act like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine today. Oh, I got a Bible sitting on my nightstand. I oh. know i probably read that sometime. Not today. I'm okay. No, you're not. There, there is a greater reality at play. And when we believe that, when we take that serious, when we listen to the words of Christ in regards to these things, when we listen to Paul's instruction to the churches in regards to these things, and if we believe His word, then we'll believe how serious it really is. And you will be Uh, focused on the kingdom, which will allow you to resist the evil one, which will then allow or or call for him to flee from you. We're in danger, number one, not because of the evil one, but because of our hearts. I think that's another misnomer about spiritual warfare is we give uh, Satan credit for everything. Most of you will probably never encounter him. He's not God. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere all at once. And he might not even know who you are. But your own heart only needs to be influenced in some roundabout way for it to fall away and go after such things that he's in favor of. So if he can put that out there through focusing on uh, systems and structures and and world forces and governments and all this sort of stuff, then he can can reach you just to tempt you away. He knows your heart. He knows you, what it's like. He's had centuries of practice here dealing with humans. So our heart is probably enemy number one. That's the first battle. And then, after that, if you do battle there, then you've already done battle with the evil one. Because he can't get to you anymore. If you believe and follow the words of God, if you seek after the one who is holy and righteous and perfect and loving and merciful, how's he going to get to you? And in fact, what you read in Romans 8 tells us that Jesus is interceding for us, so you've got that. And then Paul also says, who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Those whom God has saved, who's going to bring a charge against them? It's kind of like that scene in Job, right? Where, Where Satan approaches God and they have this discussion about Job. Well, Satan is seeking there, taking that opportunity to... Try and show God like, look, faith in you doesn't matter that people are just tied to material things. Well, true faith rises above the the uh, current state of what we're experiencing and looks to a God who is sovereign over all those things. So much so that he will cause all of those things to work for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, Satan doesn't get that. So that's how how you have victory ultimately at the end of the day in Job. It's not that Job is awesome. He's not. It's that he knows who God is. Intimate knowledge of the Holy One allows you to resist the devil. And how do you get intimate knowledge of the Holy One? From the Bible. That's what we have. I've already made mention of 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is more effective in getting you to believe a half-truth than scaring you in some horror type of Hollywood imagery of Satan and evil. He is more effective in his endeavors by getting into the church and blinding you than he is in scaring you with some evil image. And that's what you need to watch out for, right? Job 2.7, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He was allowed to do that. He wasn't able to do that until he was given permission to do it, which, does that sound comforting? No, not really, that the Lord would allow him to do some of the things that he does. But it is because it's all going to work for good because Job belongs to God. So some of these things maybe that you experience could come in that way from him. But if you're his, Romans 8 again tells us you're more than conquerors through him who loved us over all these things. Maybe even in all these things, the nakedness, the peril, the sword, the famine, all that. Satan would seek to do to separate us from the love of Jesus cannot be done. He has no authority to do it. He may try like he does here in Job, but the Lord laughs because of how near he holds his children. Listen to this exchange uh, with with Peter and Jesus, right? Um, Luke 22, verse 31 through 32 Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What, what Jesus was doing there for Peter, when Peter, when Peter faced the, the greatest temptation of his life and he fell victim to it, What was happening there is what's happening for you and I, according to Romans 8. Jesus is interceding on his behalf. In other words, Peter doesn't stand a chance against the schemes of the evil one unless Jesus is for him. Why? Because Jesus is the only one that has authority over everything. You don't have authority over the evil forces at work. But Jesus does. Therefore, if you are in him... You live above that reality. You can't be taken away from him by these evil things. You can't be destroyed ultimately by these evil things. Because Jesus reigns supreme over all that. So Jesus prays, no, uh, you don't get Peter. That's pretty awesome. Now, the transverse is that is sometimes people are given over to Satan. And in fact, we read in 1 Corinthians about a church discipline case in which Paul instructs them to give this certain person, member over to Satan that he might learn. In other words, Satan's going to be used as a tool to bring somebody back in line with holiness of the church. Isn't that amazing? He's a tool, Literally. Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. You remember that? The parable of the soils, right? And there's that one that fell along the path and the, the birds came and ate it. Well, that's, that's a metaphor, right? That's an illustration of what happens when the word comes to somebody and they don't grasp it, they don't understand it, they don't, they don't get it. It's easily taken away. They're easily blinded from the glory of Christ. They've heard these things, but they don't seek to understand them. They don't care. I want to know. It's getting snatched away. 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Not seeking someone to injure or to maim. Devour carries with it the idea that there's a complete destruction. He wants to swallow you whole. He is after your complete destruction. And the question is, do you care? Do you care that the evil forces at work, not even to mention the desires of your own heart, are after your destruction? They are living night and day to do this. What are we living night and day to do? The answer should be to seek the Lord. Now, do we? No. I don't. But, but we have to be constantly reminded to that end, or like dumb sheep will just kind of get sidetracked by something running along our path or getting stuck in the mud, and we'll just lay down and die. But we have a good shepherd who carries us out of that and gets us through all of that. Um, So verse 10 of Ephesians 6. Be strong, how? In the Lord and in the strength of His might. Romans 4.20, this is talking about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. You know why Abraham's righteous? Because he believes God. So, by believing God, he doesn't waver. If he doesn't believe God, he wavers when God says something to him. This is what happened in the garden. Adam had the word of God. Don't Eat from this tree. If you do, you'll die. Gives Adam a wife, begins to take his mind off the Lord as first and foremost, forgets what the Lord gave him to protect, watch over the garden, and then what happens? They begin to not believe the full word of God. So they waver for a second, and death comes in. It it is that intense. A few moments of unbelief can bring death and destruction. 1 John 2.14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And why? And the word of God abides in you. And what's that do? It makes them overcome the evil one. So strength in the Lord is believing in His Word, which makes you what? Overcome the evil one. Therefore, what do you need? The Word of God. That's what you need. That's, that's everything for us. That's where we get life. That's where we get instruction. It's where we get protection. It's in the Word. Let's talk about that scheming devil. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know what schemes here means? It's it's really crazy, but this is who Satan is. Scheming is a a method of systematically deceiving um, somebody. And, and, And it's described here, describing the devil as orderly in his approach In other words, he knows what he's doing. He has a plan of attack. He has forces lined up against uh, the Lord and his word. He goes about this in a systematic evil way. Do we make a plan to combat these spiritual forces? Do we make a plan, more importantly, to combat our unbelief? I guess essentially a Bible reading plan is that plan to methodically and systematically overcome the evil one by being orderly in your approach to believing the Word of God. You have to read it. You have to know it. You have to have it in your heart. You know, I had a, a, a renowned professor for a, a biblical backgrounds class, and I think he's since retired. He was having trouble uh, mentally, which is a shame because he's brilliant, right? But uh, anyways, he said to us one day, and it carried the force of, just a huge force came out when he said this. We were talking about biblical backgrounds, and he was talking about all there is in Scripture to unpack that we haven't even begun to think of yet. There's things that we know by heart, verses we know by heart that we don't even know what they mean. And he told us, he said, I combat temptation and unbelief with Scripture's that you don't even know about. And he's talking about the Bible. In other words, he's saying, I know things about Scripture that allow me to combat my unbelief and evil in ways you haven't even thought about. He knows the specifics of the truths in Scripture and the background force of what Paul or Peter or John is saying when they're, when they're writing And he is using that truth to equip himself against things that seek to destroy him in his own heart. He was a very secure man in his faith because he was a great professor. No, because the word of God was made known to him by reading it and studying it. The same opportunity, by the way, that you and I have. Even if you're not a great reader, even if you think you're slow to understand, that's me. I'm very slow to understand. If only you could be with me in my study, it would be hilarious to you. How long it takes me to get to certain understandings, that should be obvious. But if you keep seeking the Lord, He'll give it to you. If you ask Him, He'll give it to you. He knows how to give good gifts. He knows how to give His children good gifts. He knows how to give wisdom. If you seek Him, you'll find Him. He promises that. Therefore, don't let anything stand in your way. Go after it. And you'll have it. Ephesians 4.14, you know, that's why He's giving the gifts to the church that he gives in, in the apostles and the teachers and the preachers and all these types of people, he gives them, Ephesians four fourteen so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful what? schemes. If we seek the truth, we read the truth, if we're taught the truth, then we can't be carried away by the deceitful schemes. We'll easily be able to pull out that sword and say, no, I don't think that's right. I think you ought to get that lie out of here. Because my sword says otherwise. And then what? The devil flees. How does Jesus resist the evil one? Now, look at that, right? Right? Because he is the God-man. So he's experiencing what it means to be in the flesh, right? He's, he's fasting these 40 days and 40 nights a week. If, if you've ever fasted for any length of time, even a meal, right? You feel like, oh man, I'm going to die. Okay, 40 days, 40 nights. He has given up all earthly strength. And he is not uh, presuming to use his authority as God. He is submitting himself to God in these ways. And so he's experiencing this. Uh, temptation from the devil himself. A temptation you probably won't ever experience. Temptation from the devil himself. And Jesus combats that with what? The word. That should tell us everything we need to know about spiritual warfare. It's not magical, it's not mystical, it's word based. Know the truth. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is, there is something going on that is, that is greater than Democrat, Republican, that is greater than whatever we see in, in world governments, and it's greater than whatever we see in conflicting ideologies. There, there, there is something at play that, that makes those things what they are. And we have to do battle on that level. If you do battle on this earthly level, you're you're probably guaranteed to fail or get entangled in in some sort of mess that really won't bring any sort of uh, victory or life or truth. You have to do battle on that level. And the only way you can do battle on that level is what's described about here in Ephesians 6. And it's namely done through word and through prayer that's all we see in scripture now are there some awesome miracles and authorities that the lord gave to the apostles and disciples in the the early foundation of the church absolutely and did jesus himself cast out demons and do that kind of spiritual warfare right there in the flesh yeah but all that did was reveal the authority that jesus has and he told his disciples, when they were excited at the fact that the demons were subject to them in his name, he told them, hey, don't rejoice over that. Rejoice over the fact that, that your names are written in heaven. In other words, it's your mind. It's my authority that wins this battle. So are, are you seeking like Simon the magician, right, and Acts to buy the Holy Spirit so you can exercise this power? We're going to look at Acts 19, maybe. And, uh, and See how what it looks like when you foolishly try and um, use uh, spiritual incantations in the name of Jesus to do crazy things. It doesn't work out well. But if you are His, right? You live in His authority over such things. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's a battle. It's not in the flesh. We have weapons that are not of the flesh. They have divine power. And uh, there's going to be things that come against the knowledge of God. And if we have the knowledge of God, because he wrote it for us, uh, then we can take every thought, lie, everything that's, that we ingest captive, put it through this filter, and then obey Christ, who did what? Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. He set people free. You had a master, right? It was sin and death. And that master served a greater master. Satan. But what Jesus did on the cross... Set you free from that, so you serve a new master, and it 's him, and that master has authority over everything, and he disarmed those authorities that were in place, therefore serve him I'll go back to them; they have no authority over you anymore so I want, to, I want to just briefly look at this unusual example of a uh, Suppose spiritual warfare in Acts 19, the sons of Siva. I think this is hilarious on some level, but also it's really amazing. And I'll just give you a, a, a synopsis here for time's sake. Acts 19, 11 through 20, these itinerant Jewish exorcists, they seek to take the Lord's name because they're seeing what Paul's able to do in Jesus' name, and they are seeking... To obtain some sort of uh, celebrity or power or authority by saying, okay, this seems to be working. So we're going to go into the demon possessed and we're going to invoke the name of Christ and and it's going to cast the demon out and we're going to have all that power and people are going to, we're just going to be awesome, right? That's what they're after. You know what happens? Seven of these Jewish sons of Siva go in and this man that's demon possessed masters them all verse 16 and they leave naked i don't know if any of you have ever been in a fight but it's pretty bad when you leave naked you got beat super bad and he did the seven of them and what did that prove that proved that you can't peddle the name of the lord jesus for some sort of mystical experience over the spiritual forces it's his authority they're not in him So the demons, they say, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? I love that, that's hilarious. Who are you? And you know what happened after that? I think, number one, the sons of Siva uh, had to recognize that they weren't in Christ, Uh, Number two, it says in verse 17 that fear fell upon all the residents of Ephesus, Jew and Greek, and the the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, magnified. Also, many of those who were were, now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver or drachma, which is a day's wage. And if you convert that into what our day's wages are, 50,000 means it comes to an equivalent of $6 million worth of spiritual books and incantations were burned and destroyed that day. What did they recognize? They recognized that nothing works or has authority over these things except Jesus. So he's magnified. He's glorified. Everything else is worthless in having authority over these things. And what does that do? Verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord. Not our word. Not a series of words that we put together to seek to destroy strongholds. His word. James 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So kill two birds by one stone by seeking the Lord. Right? When you you have your morning coffee with your Bible open, you are doing spiritual warfare while being sanctified, while enjoying communion with the Lord. If you're with him, nothing can get to you. So surround yourself. Sit with him. Seek him. Be after him. And this is amazing. The devil will flee. It's kind of what the demon recognized um, here in verse 15 of Acts 19. He recognized Paul because he recognized that Paul lived In Christ. And if something or someone is in Christ, or someone is in Christ, not something, is in Christ, what can the devil do? What can the evil forces do? But also, be watchful for your own heart. The unbelief that creeps up, the doubt, the confusion... Clear that up by seeking the Lord. So when you engage in circumstances that seem confusing to you or it seems like God is silent or distant or that He's not going to show up and do what He promised to do, what do you have to combat that with? Just blind hope that it'll get better? No, you have actual concrete truth from the very words of God that were recorded and preserved so that you also may have them as his child to do battle with. So when you get to the end of Ephesians 6, right? It tells you to put all these things on. We can't go over that right now. But it tells you at the end of that, after you've taken the sword, pray at all times. Pray at all times. Only he can destroy strongholds. Only he has authority over the evil forces. Appeal to him. And remember how Jesus did spiritual warfare while he was here. Remember Matthew 4. So I pray that you would respond to the Lord now and that you would seek his face and um, Recognize his authority, and then we'll stand and sing.